where they're going, uh, you're free to do that. Uh, we want to say right here at the beginning of the service, as we have hundreds of kids leaving for Fusion and Fusion Plus, we have, hundred, we have a lot of kids already in their classrooms. Like Elizabeth said this morning, um, we are asking for help in serving here at Mount Calvary. Our, fam- our church family is growing, hundreds of kids, um, and, and we need help. We need help serving uh, throughout the morning. My wife, Ashley, attends the 9 o'clock service, and then she goes and serves the 4th and 5th graders in Fusion Plus during the 1030. She was telling me how uh, as they get into the fall, they will have one adult male and one adult female, and what they do every week after they teach the lesson, they get into small groups. But what she said, she's realizing they're not small groups. It's large. It's one female small group leader, one male small group leader, and it's the whole class. And Fusion is experiencing the same thing, Um, and so we're asking that you would pray and consider how can you help serve. Um, And it may not be kids' ministry, uh, but we would, we would love to have you serve in kids' ministry. Um, we like to do small groups in fusion. And to do small groups, you need smaller amount of numbers and adults. And so if you would just consider it, uh, we would love to talk to you about it. Shannon Bauer is here this morning. She's one of our new staff members. She works with our volunteers in our kids' ministry. She would love to talk. There she is. Wave, Shannon. Go find her. And just talk to her. A question we often hear is, how's it going to work for the dynamic of my family? I have a high schooler and a middle schooler. And come talk to us. We will find a way for you to serve where everyone can either serve or attend a class. And we would love to help you think that through. But we, you know, I would love if you could come for two services. I would love if you could come to two services. Serve. Get to know the kids that you're serving. Ashley knows their names, has gotten to care for them, but then you come and you worship in the second. And I know it's complicated. Everybody's schedule is different, uh, but we, looking into the fall, we recognize we're going to need some help. So that's my plea. We are back from vacation, obviously. We had a great trip to California. For those who didn't know, we spent about a week and a half starting in San Francisco went down all the way to the national parks and to San Diego. It was an amazing trip. We even had a trip to an ER at one point. It has to have a trip to the ER, doesn't it? And I apologize in advance. You're going to get some sermon illustrations these next couple of months because that's what happens. Um, But I think I said before, Ashley and I are planners. Um, We had an Excel document that mapped out hourly day by day, a plan for what we wanted to do as we went through California. In general, um, we knew what was coming. We knew where we were going. We had done research. We made reservations. We had an hourly Excel document. We knew what we were walking into. One place in particular that I felt pretty familiar with before we got there was Yosemite National Park. Yosemite National Park is probably the most popular of all the national parks. And so I knew I had to do some research. I had to study it. It's, it's very crowded. Um, there's so many trails. It's a massive park. So I did lots of study. So again, I felt pretty familiar with Yosemite uh, before we actually got there. Another way that I was familiar with one part of Yosemite National Park was, was with El Capitan. 
So I don't know why Apple has chosen to do this, but I'm an Apple user, have a Mac and a, an iPhone, and, and, and the, the, uh, the desktop picture for Apple for so many years has been Yosemite. So for years, I have stared at El Capitan um, on my computer desktop picture. Um, and so I did all the study for, for, for El Capitan. I did all the study for Yosemite. I knew a lot about this particular rock before we got there. I knew what shuttle stop was, was needed to get and to see El Capitan. Um, so I think you, you get what I'm saying. Well, so Wednesday, it was a Wednesday that we were planned to be there. We had stayed at a yurt the night before. That's another sermon illustration. The old yurt. Yeah. And so we knew we had to get up early and to get to the parking that we wanted to park at, that we were going drive to drive past El Capitan. Well, so crowded that we, you have to get up really early and you have to claim your parking spot for the day. And so according to our Excel document, um, we are driving past El Capitan. We are going to the parking lot. We're getting our parking spot. And later, we'll take shuttle stop number nine, and we'll see El Capitan. So that was the plan. It takes about 30 to 45 minutes of winding roads. When we came around a bend, and there before us was El Capitan. Now, I'm not good at expressing my emotions. This was one of the most magnificent things I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I knew what it was. I looked at the picture every single day. But when we pulled around the bend and El Capitan was before us, I was speechless. Absolutely majestic. Excel document out the window. We pulled over, and with all the other cars, we parked at a pull-off, and we took it in. And it truly was stunning. On one side of the road is a beautiful waterfall. El Capitan's on the other side. It was so early, the sun was just coming up. Uh, it, it, it took your breath away. And I realized, I mean, I had seen El Capitan in pictures. I had looked at it every single day on my computer. I knew the shuttle stop. I knew the paths that took it to El Capitan. But until that moment, until that morning, I realized... I did not know El Capitan. I knew a lot about El Capitan, but until this moment, I really hadn't experienced it. And in a lot of ways, as I took this in, because this was the highlight for me on our trip, and as I reflected on that through the rest of the trip, it's been a very similar experience with the Lord's Prayer. I mean, we know the Lord's Prayer. I mean, when I read the Lord's Prayer, we can hardly stop ourselves from repeating it. I mean, we just want to repeat it. We've memorized it. Our kids have memorized it. We know all about it. But then I think, do, do we really know it? I mean, do we really understand what we're praying when we pray the Lord's Prayer? Does it mean anything to us? I mean, what does it mean to hallow God's name? What does it mean to say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done? And I think as we've done this study this summer, we've come to the realization that, yeah, I know a lot about the Lord's Prayer, and I even have it memorized, but I'm not sure that I've really experienced the power of this prayer. I'm not sure that I really understand and 
feel what I'm praying when I pray it. And so for us this summer, it's been for me and for all of us, the hope has been we want to know what we're praying. We want to know what the words mean so that when we pray it, we really pray it. And so this morning, we come around the bend and we have the last of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And my hope as we dig into this petition, that it would allow us to gaze in the beauty of our Father who loves us. I'll read the whole prayer and then we'll pray. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. And so, Father, we come to a very familiar passage. But God, I pray that just because we know all about it, that we would not be kept from really knowing it today. And so, God, we ask, help us. Open up our minds and our hearts and our eyes that we would see and feel and know what we need to know. We come into this room this morning, broken people, needy people, distracted people, stressed people. Maybe we come into this room perfectly content. God, wherever we find ourselves, God, we pray that through the work of your spirit and through the power of your word that you would shape and change our lives today. So God, I pray, help us to be open and willing to that end. God, we pray this in the power of your spirit and through the Son. Amen. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Four questions as we kind of work our way in hoping that we can understand this prayer. Why don't we pray this? Why should we pray this? How do we pray this? And then how is this prayer specifically answered once we do pray it? But why don't we pray this? Well, it does, we don't pray this because this prayer doesn't make sense. The heart can't get behind what the mind doesn't understand. I mean, my first reaction when I read this line in the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is this. Why would we pray for something that God is not going to do to begin with? I mean, this is, I'm being just honest. I mean, that's my, has always been my question with this passage. Why are we praying for God not to do something that he can't do because it's outside of his character? We know the, the passage in James. God cannot be tempted to evil. God tempts no one. Are you familiar with that passage? So then if that's true, why would we pray for something that is outside of the character of God to ever do? He will never tempt us. He will never lead us into this kind of evil. This is James 1.13. And I think because it's a little confusing, what are we praying when we pray? Lead us not into temptation. I mean, is it, is it a completely useless prayer? Like if it could never happen then why is Jesus telling us to pray it? I mean, I get this way with songs sometimes. There's a song that says, Holy Spirit, we invite you into the atmosphere. And it's like, well, why are we singing that, that line? Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is in the atmosphere. And we don't have to ask him to be. Why do we pray? 
things that are outside of the character of God are, are according to his will and his way, why would we pray this? And so I think it's confusing. So I think it's really helpful for us to not just recite it, but slow down, and we have to dig underneath it so that we can understand it, so that we can be obedient to Jesus and we can pray it. So how, do we, how can we understand this line? Well, I think it's helpful to look at Scripture as we try to understand what this means. Okay, so one thing that you'll read if you're reading about Matthew 6 and the Lord's Prayer, one interpretation of what this last line means is something like this. When we pray that God would not lead us into temptation, what we are praying is, is that God would not lead us into a situation where we will be tempted. So that's how some interpret this last prayer. So, God, do not lead me into temptation. Okay, don't lead me uh, to be around this person that causes me to, to get anxious or to get angry or to get upset. God, don't lead me near the bar where, where I might do something I regret. Don't lead me, Father, into a situation where I will be tempted to do something that will be wrong. And so many people understand the prayer this way. But here's the problem with that, with that understanding of the prayer. It's what just happened with Jesus. If you go back to Matthew 4, when Jesus was tempted, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why would Jesus teach us to pray for something, against something that God, through the Spirit, just did for him. Clearly, here in Matthew 4, 1, the Spirit leads Jesus into a situation where he would be tempted by the devil. And so does it make sense then, in the context of Matthew, that we would pray against something that the Father, through the Spirit, did with Jesus? And we're going to see it at the end of Matthew, in Matthew uh, chapter 26, you see it with the book of Job. And I think what we would say is, well, that's probably not what this prayer means in Matthew 6. So the conclusion would be, God can, through his spirit, lead us into a situation where we would be tempted by the devil. This is what he does with Jesus and Job and with others. So that's probably not, therefore, the best understanding of this prayer here in Matthew 6. And I've already said, James 1.13, it's not, we're not saying God don't tempt us because we are told that he does not do that. So then what does this prayer mean? I think Matthew chapter 26 gives us the best picture of what we're praying when we pray this sixth petition. So if you have a Bible and you can turn there, I'll put a couple of verses on the screen. But Matthew 26, kind of catch you up. This is the night before Jesus is betrayed and arrested and crucified. Okay, so this would have been Thursday night. Jesus was with his disciples. And I think it's pretty clear in the context of Matthew 26, Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. Jesus knows what is before him and what he is walking into. And he is about to pray with his disciples. And to just make my first point again, the prayer with the disciples is not Jesus, is not Father, get us out of this trial. Get us out of this temptation. No. Jesus and his boys walk into the garden. 
they walk into the trial, into the temptation. And when they get there, what does Jesus say? He says, my soul is troubled. I am troubled. Death is here. It is before me. And he looks at his guys and he says, sit up with me and pray. Pray with me. Jesus goes and prays. He comes back to his guys, the disciples. And what are the disciples doing? They are sleeping. And Jesus looks at them and he talks to them in verse 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And now we start to kind of understand what Jesus is teaching us. This is what he's teaching us. Exactly what he's teaching the disciples. Watch and pray and be careful and be mindful. Pray that God would give you the strength to not enter into the sin of the temptation that you face all around you. And it makes a lot of sense with what he's talking with the disciples about. He's saying to the disciples, listen, it's about to get rough. It's about to get very difficult for you. And you're going to have temptation all around you. The thoughts that are going to flood your minds this weekend as I'm arrested, betrayed, and arrested, and crucified. You're going to, be, you're going to feel in trouble, and you're going to feel discouraged, and you're going to feel confused, and you're going to feel trapped. What is Jesus telling them here before the events of the weekend start? He's saying, pray. Prepare yourself. Your, your mind is going to want to react to the emotions of your heart. You're going to want to run away. You're going to want to forsake me. You're going to want to leave me. You're going to want to curse me. You're going to be, you're going to, your mind is going to want to do what your heart is feeling, what Jesus is saying to them before all the events start to happen in the garden. He's saying, now is the time to prepare yourself. Your, your flesh is weak, the spirit is strong, but pray now, watch and pray that you would not enter into the sin and the temptation that surrounds you. And what's interesting, in Matthew 26, this is what Jesus is about to do. He says, watch and pray, and then Jesus goes and he prays again. And if you look at what Jesus prays, he says, he does exactly what he's teaching his disciples to do. He says, Father, if you could take this cup from me. I mean, this is the, the struggle of Jesus here. The temptation of, Father, is there another way? But what does he do in the very next breath? No. Not my will. Your will. Your will be done. He recognizes the test and the trial and the temptation. If there's another way to take the cup, but in the very next breath, he says, no. Your will be done. Your will in this situation. Steal me for this moment, Father. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't enter into the temptation. He stands up outside of it. And this is how Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. And this is how he's teaching us to pray. I don't know if you've ever seen the video of kiddos with marshmallows where, it, where they're being tested or tempted to not eat the marshmallow. The, the way the video goes, there's a kid in a room, there's a table, and there's a big fluffy marshmallow. And the adult says to the kid, don't eat the marshmallow. I'm going to step outside of the room, 
If you don't eat the, if you don't eat the marshmallow, I will come back and I will give you three or four more. And they watch the angst of these poor children struggling not to eat these big marshmallows. And what happens is, as you watch the video, you can see when the children enter into the temptation of the marshmallow. The one little boy picks up the marshmallow and he just rests it on his lips. The girl, one girl just caresses the marshmallow. The one little boy just takes off the smallest corner of the marshmallow and eats it. And this is when they've entered into the temptation. The mind is entertaining what the heart has solicited. And they have fallen now. They eat the marshmallow. He puts it on his lap and then he eats the entire thing. But this is what happens when desire is conceived. It gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives, forth, it gives birth to death. The mind, when we get to the point where we're so close to that temptation, we've entered into it and we have fallen. And what Jesus is saying to the disciples in Matthew 26, to us in Matthew 6, watch and pray against the temptation that you would not enter into it. Pray for strength. Pray for strength, for help, for discernment, for wisdom to not enter into the sin that surrounds you. So why do we need to pray this? Why is this a prayer that Jesus would include in Matthew chapter 6? I mean, there's only six petitions, and this makes it as the last one. I mean, it's not the way we typically close our prayer. But for Jesus teaching us, it was. Well, why do we need it? Well, this is easy. I mean, this is not complicated. We are prone to fall headfirst into sin. I mean, each of us, you and me both included, are but a hair's breadth away from destructive sin. And Jesus knows this. He knows it for the disciples, and he knows it for us. That in, in our hearts is this constant tug towards sin. Theologically, we call this indwelling sin. In Christ, we've been set free, but before Christ, sin would dominate us like a dictator. But in Christ, we are free. It's no longer our master. It's been toppled from its spot, but, our, but the, the sin is still there. It is not dead, and it is not eradicated. And it is dwelling deep beneath the surface in each of our hearts, the Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way. We are engaged in an irreconcilable and continual war. And so this is why we need to pray it. Each of us are prone to go back to, to surrender and submit to our sin. J.D. Greer gives us, I think, a great illustration of what this is like in each of our lives. He says, according to Scripture, our sinful flesh, which stays with us until we die, is like a car severely out of alignment. As long as our hands are firmly on the wheel, we may be able to keep the car going straight down the road, but it takes a lot of effort. And if we take our hands off the wheel for even a moment, guiding it along with our knees, for instance, we don't recommend this, guiding it along with our knees, for instance, while we eat a burrito, the car immediately lurches towards the side of the road. Like moths to the flame, we veer towards evil. As the hymn writer Robert Robinson put it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. 
And this is the indwelling sin that is in each and every one of us. And for, so for this reason, we must pray for God to help us not fall into the temptation that surrounds us. And I just was thinking, as I was just writing this out and considering this, I just thought, I mean, do we pray like this? I mean, is this a normal part of our prayer life? God, I pray that you would help me not to be an angry father this week, not to be an angry father today, to not, to not be impatient towards my children, towards my neighbors, to my coworkers. I mean, do we pray specifically against our sin? Specifically against our sin, that we would not go near it. I mean, we pray for ants and uncles and animals and weather and entrance to college. And I mean, we pray for hundreds and hundreds of things, but do we ever pray that we would not walk into the sin that just sits on our shoulders. God, I pray that, that you would help me, not, not a single word to come out of my mouth today that is dishonoring to someone else. God, that you would help me today that, that not a single word would be, would be said about somebody else who's not in my presence. I'm gonna pray this prayer morning and noon and evening. I mean, do we, pray, do we pray this way towards our sin? I mean, we confess our sin every week. We confess our sin. But aren't you, are you tired of confessing the same sin Sunday after Sunday? Why aren't we praying against the sin that weighs us down? We need to. We need to. So how do we pray this? Just like Jesus does. Just like Jesus does. Early in the morning, he gets on his face. Late at night, he gets on his face. And he prays specifically. He prays earnestly. I mean, he, he labels very specifically what the trial is that's before him. I mean, this is what I've been saying. What if we named the sin that we struggle with? Lust or pride or being ungrateful or whatever, whatever the sin, if we would just pray earnestly against specific sins, we have taken steps already to do what we're praying for. We're bringing our sin into the light. We're bringing it into the light. We're acknowledging it. We're praying for it. And that, that is half the, that's the first part of the process if we're going to forsake it and walk away from it and escape it. We've got to acknowledge it and we've got to pray for it. And so this is what Jesus does. How do we pray for it? We get on our face and we ask for help. Father, help me. Help me with this specific sin. And then how do we experience God's deliverance? So how's God going to answer this prayer? It's not like you pray against lust and it just instantly dissipates from your life or you pray that you don't talk about anyone at all. It's not like it just magically disappears all of a sudden. But aren't we thankful that we pray to a God who hears us and responds? This isn't just a meaningless prayer. When we pray, God, help me, deliver me from this evil that is all around me, that's inside of me. Listen, God 
hears and he responds. Okay? So how does he do it? Well, let me first say this. And I say this often, but I will say it again here. First, this, this is assumed, but I feel compelled to say it. God wants you to experience freedom in whatever sin that you struggle with. God wants you to experience freedom in whatever sin you struggle with. And I don't care how long you have fed and entertained the sin, this what particular sin. But, but what happens is, what I see happen in the lives of, of people who follow Jesus is they say, well, this is just how I am. This is my personality. Or, or this is just, I've just done this for so long. And, and we're just resigned to our sin because it's just a, such an integral part of who we are. And so the thought of forsaking sin and being delivered from evil, it is foreign to us because our lives have been ingrained with the, the particular, whatever the particular sin may be. And so I begin by saying, God responds when we pray. He wants to rescue you. He wants to deliver you. He wants you to escape. And I don't care how long you've, you've had this sin. I don't care. And it's not going to be easy. But here's three verses. And you can write them on your mirror, paste them all over your house, because these are great reminders. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4, James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee. That's a truth statement. When we resist the devil, he must flee because Jesus and the Spirit are stronger. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except for what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll provide a way of escape so you can stay up, stand up under it. This is a promise. God is faithful. He will help you. He will provide an escape. Isn't that a great picture? Sin comes creeping in through your window, and God gets it by the neck and says, here, get out. There is a way of escape. And so, how do we experience God's deliverance? Well, the first point is, God wants you to experience it. It's possible. But how does it happen? How do we escape? Well, pretty, I mean, not simple. Cliche, maybe. One is God gives, gives us escape through the work of the Spirit in our lives. And again, it's cliche, but it's the truth. It's just the truth. What do we do in that moment of sin? What do we do? Invite the Holy Spirit to fill your life. That, that is hard to do. But it is powerful to do because when we invite the Spirit to fulfill, to fill up our hearts and our minds and our lives, what happens? We are now supernaturally given the power through the work of the Spirit to be bold and courageous and to say no to sin. You can say no to sin through the work of the Spirit in any moment. And again, it's not easy, but it is a powerful thing to see the escape that we're given when we pray for the Spirit. Second is this, the Word of God. There's a passage in John 17, 15 through 17. It says, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
Because that's essentially what, what I've been saying this morning. When, when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we're not saying take us out of the world, make our life easy and no temptations and no trials. And No. I, Jesus says, I'm not asking that. But what I'm asking is that you would keep them from the evil one. That you would not enter into the temptation of the evil one. How is it? How does this? How does Jesus tell us in John 17 that we will be able to do that? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Truth. Cling to the word of God. Memorize and study and surround yourself so that in that moment of temptation, you will be able to cling to the word of truth from God the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. And so how does God help us to escape? Through the work of the Spirit, through the truth of his word, we can escape our temptation. And so here's what I want to I challenge you as we close this series. This week, first, I want you to pick a sin that you have carried, and I want you to pray specifically that you would not enter into that temptation. I want you, and I'll do the same, I want you to suffocate your sin by persistently praying against it. Morning, noon, dinner, bedtime, Praying against your sin. I'm praying, I'm going to be praying that I would not enter into the temptation of being an impatient, ungracious, unloving father. That's what I'm praying. God, that you would help me to be patient. School's about to start. The routine's about to be different. Dad's in charge some mornings. And I can get loud. And I can get impatient. And I'm praying, Father, May I not enter into the sin of being an angry, selfish father, but may I respond with gentleness and love and compassion and patience. And I'm going to be praying this all the time. And don't you see how it works? I mean, when you name your sin and you pray about it, God's going to work. And I'm going to memorize Proverbs 15, 1 through 4, a gentle answer turns away wrath. The soothing tongue is a tree of life. A perverse tongue crushes the spirit. And now the whole church knows about what I'm talking about. My wife heard it. I mean, this is what happens when we pray specifically the way Jesus has taught us to pray. And so that's my challenge to you. Pick a sin that is a struggle in your life. Not one that's not a struggle. That's not helpful. A sin you struggle with. And pray specifically against it. And let's see, what, let's see what God does. Let's see what freedom we experience. Let's see what, we, what life we walk into. And here's the second challenge. Let's start praying the Lord's Prayer. Not, not reciting it, not repeating it, but actually praying the heart or the meaning by, behind which the prayer teaches us. And you pray it for yourself first but then maybe you want to pick a few people in your life to pray it for, for your spouse, for your children, or for maybe teachers. You want to pray for your classroom this year. Pray the Lord's Prayer. College students, maybe, maybe you want to pray for your 
for this, the Lord's Prayer for the semester ahead. I, whoever you are, whatever, wherever you find yourself, what would it be like for you to pray the Lord's Prayer for what it actually means? Our Father in heaven, you love us and you are strong enough to do something with our life. Hallowed be your name. In other words, I want to treasure you. I want to love you and honor you. Your kingdom come. I want to submit to you as king. Your will be done. I want to follow you today. Give us this day our daily bread. Provide whatever is needed today, Father, so that I would have what I need to treasure you, to submit to you, and follow you. Forgive us our debts. I confess my sin to you. And lead us not into temptation. Help me escape the sin I just confessed tomorrow. Help me. Deliver me. What if we prayed this? I want to treasure you. I want to submit to you. And I want to follow you. Give me what I need. Surround me with what I need so that I can do those things. I confess my sins to you. Help me to live in the victory that you give through the work of the Spirit. What if we prayed this? Life would be different. Life would be different for you and your spouse and your family. And it is my prayer that we can not just pray this, but that our life would be aimed towards this purpose. Let's pray as we close. And so, Father, we do pray this. As a church, we pray it. We come to you as Father. You are a Father who loves us and who is strong enough to take care of us. God, and we, we treasure you. We love you. We worship you. And as king, we, we submit to you. We want to submit to you. Help us to submit to you. And God, we want to follow you. We want to, be, we want to be obedient in the ways that you've put before us, the people you've put before us. We want to be obedient to you. We want to follow you and help us. Give us what we need today and tomorrow that we would be able to treasure, submit, and to follow you. Whatever we need to, to, to see that that is what life is all about. Give us what we need so that we can be who we're supposed to be. And yet we fail, Father. As a church, we fail. As a pastor, I fail. We fail. And so we confess our sins to you, but we don't just confess them. We ask through the power and the work of a risen Jesus and the spirit that we've been given that we would find victory through him with these sins. And so, God, we pray these in the name of Jesus. As we close our time, just spend a few moments praying. Confess sin. Ask for help in tomorrow. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Have a few moments to pray, and then we'll close with a song. Mm-hmm.